welcome to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. This podcast is devoted to helping increase your daily exposure to God's Word with a short scripture reading and brief commentary on key ideas, themes, and theology in each chapter. Now please join your host, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Well, welcome back to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. My name is Dave. Today we're going to look at Exodus chapter 9. Just a reminder, every day I read from one chapter of God's Word, so today, Exodus chapter 9, and then I offer a brief explanation of key ideas, themes, and theology very briefly. My goal is to get you into God's Word for about 5 to 20 minutes every day. So let's get to our reading from Exodus chapter 9 now. And Exodus chapter 9 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in the sores of man, and beasts throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Pharaoh because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all the, my plagues on you yourself, and on your servants, and on your people, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you you my power so that my name may be may be proclaimed in all the earth you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go behold about this time tomorrow i will cause very heavy hail to rain such as never been in egypt from the day it was founded until now now therefore i send get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them then whoever feared the word of the lord among the servants of Pharaoh, hurried his slaves and his livestock and houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, a man and beast, and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. And then Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire rain down from the earth. 
And, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. And then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in his right. I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the entire earth is the Lord's. But as for you, you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat was and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh, stretched out his hand to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And so the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses." Well, this is our reading today from Exodus chapter 8. By now, the basic pattern of the Exodus plagues is becoming very familiar to us. Like its predecessors, the fifth plague began with God's command in Exodus 9-1. In fact, with these words in Exodus 9-1, God told Moses to go and seek another audience with the king of Egypt. And since he was God's representative, called to be God's ambassador to Egypt, Moses spoke to Pharaoh with true divine authority. He addressed him using the special name that God had revealed back at the burning bush. Moses spoke on behalf of Yahweh, the great I am, the Lord God of the Hebrews. And God was explicit about the consequences of Pharaoh's actions. If he persisted in his tyranny, the Egyptians would suffer a terrible, terrible plague. Their livestock, the domesticated animals on which they depended for milk, for food, for clothing, for labor, and even transportation, they would all get sick and they would all die. The plagues gradually increased in their severity. So not only was the fifth plague the first to bring death, but it was also the first to destroy Pharaoh's personal property. This was only fair. If Pharaoh would not let go of God's property, then he would suffer the loss of his own. And his losses were mounting as his punishment became more and more intense. And whereas the plague of gnats was attributed merely to the finger of God in Exodus 8.19, the plagues on the livestock was sent by the hand of the Lord in Exodus 9.3. And like the other plagues, the fifth plague was a genuine miracle. The, the plague was miraculous in itself, destroying all of Egypt's cattle. It was miraculous in its timing, according to verse 5 of our chapter today. Moses was able to make this prediction, not because he was a good guesser, but because God had revealed it in advance the time of his intervention. John Courage summarizes this by saying that the miraculous nature of the pestilence is seen not only in their degree and intensity, but in their timing and duration. In fact, the fifth plague was miraculous in its careful distinction it drew between Israel 
Israel and Egypt. God first made this distinction in the fourth plague when flies swarmed all over Egypt, everywhere except in Goshen, where the Israelites lived. And in the fifth plague, God again discriminated between his people and Pharaoh's people. Moses said this in verse 4, But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. And of course, that's exactly what happened according to verse 6 of our chapter today. And on the basis of his covenant, God has set the Israelites apart, protecting them from the plagues and ultimately rescuing them from danger. But the Egyptians were not the people of God, and thus they fell under the divine curse. Now, by stretching out his hand against Pharaoh, God also proved his power over Pharaoh's gods. Now, as we've seen, one of the keys to unlocking this spiritual meaning of the plagues is Numbers 30. 3-4, which states that the Lord brought judgment on their gods. The God of Israel performed his signs and wonders in order to triumph over the gods of Egypt. This biblically based, divine, divinely ordained interpretation of Exodus, it encourages us to connect the plagues of the objects of, of Egyptian idolatry. In fact, the symbolism of the fifth plague is especially potent because many of the Egypt's gods and goddesses were depicted as livestock. Some Egyptians worshipped the bull, which they viewed as a fertility figure, the great inseminator imbued with the potency and the vitality of life. Cults dedicated to the bull were common throughout Egypt. There was Bukis, the sacred bull of Hermethus, and Menevis, who was worshipped at Hylopolis, and sometimes bulls were considered to embody the gods Patai and Ra, but the chief bull was Apis, and the temple in Memphis priests maintained a sacred enclosure where they kept a live bull considered to be the incarnation of Apis. And when the venerable bull died, he was given an elaborate burial. Archaeologists have discovered funeral niches for hundreds of these bulls near Memphis. And then there were the goddesses. Isis, the queen of the gods, was generally depicted with the cow horns on her head. And similarly, the goddess Hathor was was represented with the head of the cow, sometimes with the sun between her two horns. Hathor was a goddess of love and beauty, motherhood and fertility, and one of the sacred functions was protect Pharaoh, and on occasion, she was even depicted as a cow suckling the king for nourishment. To summarize, like so many modern Hindus, the Egyptians loved their sacred cows. In fact, they seemed to have worshipped the entire bovine family, and thus it was not surprising that when the Israelites later decided to rebel against the God of their salvation and return to the gods of Egypt, they made a golden calf in Exodus 32, as we'll see. And so the livestock were such an integral part of their religion, the Egyptians were devastated by God's plague on their livestock. Cattle lay dying on every farm and on every temple. Farmers anxiously watched their cattle get sick and grow weak. And to their shame, priests saw their holy cows stagger around their sacred pens until they fell down dead. God was proving himself to the Egyptians on their own terms, exposing the cult of the cow as a false religion. And thus the fifth plague followed the pattern. And when Pharaoh refused to meet God's demand, God sent a miraculous plague that demonstrated his power over Egypt's gods. Now, what was it going to take, we need to ask? Well, perhaps Pharaoh would relent if God afflicted his very body. Physical suffering has a way of getting somebody's attention in a way that nothing else can. And so God sent the sixth plague, a plague of boils, in, in verses 8 through 11 of our chapter today. 
Now, things here are getting very personal. The first five plagues have been a real bother. The Egyptians had seen rivers of blood and lost herds of livestock. Pharaoh himself has seen frogs jump in and out of his bed and even tried to shoo flies away from his royal person. But nothing drove them all crazy like this plague. The Egyptians were covered with painful open sores from head to toe. And this showed that the God of Israel had power over their very bodies. And it should have warned them that their very lives were in mortal danger. Like the other plagues, the boils were a genuine miracle. No, no merely natural explanation is sufficient to account for all the details of our passage today. The plague was miraculous in its onset. It came about unannounced, a disaster without warning. The plague was miraculous in its method. Moses and Aaron scooped back suit from a furnace, and when they tossed it into the air, the suit was transubstantiated to find dust over the whole land of Egypt, according to verse 9 of our chapter. What happened next was equally miraculous. The dust caused boils to break out, but only on the Egyptians. In fact, verse 11 specifies that the boils were on all the Egyptians. And as we're talking about, God used the plague to discriminate between his people and Pharaoh's people. Egypt was plagued while Israel was protected. And so in this respect, as in all others, the outbreak of boils was a miraculous demonstration of the infinite power of God over all creation. Now, like the first five boils that God struck against the Egyptians, the, the sixth plague has three results. First, Pharaoh's gods were humbled. Second, Pharaoh's magicians were humiliated. And third, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. The plague of boils was an attack on all the gods and the goddesses that the Egyptians trusted for healing. And so when the Bible says that the Lord brought judgment on their gods in Numbers 33, 4, it is speaking comprehensively. God defeated the entire pantheon of Egypt, Amun, Thor, Ithra, Imitha, uh, Sikkim, and all the rest. Perhaps this explains why God sent such a variety of plagues on the Egyptians. He wanted to expose the impotence of their idolatry by causing each and every single idol to fail in its area of special expertise. And when the Egyptians were covered with painful oozing sores, they discovered that their gods could not heal. Well, before dismissing the Egyptians of their folly, it's important to recognize that we are tempted today to worship the same deities. This is an age, our age, of remarkable progress in medicine. The age of lasers, CAT scans, antibiotics, anesthesia. In fact, during the 20th century, many diseases were virtually eradicated. Diseases like polio and smallpox. In the next hundred years, scientists may well discover cures for killers like AIDS, cancer, mad cow disease, the Ebola virus, and, and on and on. Genetic research will develop new forms of treatment for hereditary diseases, including medicines that manipulate human DNA. Well, as a result of our advanced knowledge of the body and its various ailments, it's tempting to make medicine an object of faith. Most patients go to the hospital believing they're going to be cured, but it doesn't always work out that way. Doctors and nurses sometimes make mistakes. They, they don't always make the right diagnosis or prescribe the right treatment. Besides, there is no cure for death. Let's be clear about that. So medicine truly does have limits. This is, is true 
not only of clinical medicine, but also of alternative medicine, which uses the healing properties of vitamins and other naturally occurring substances. Despite all of our skill at healing, we are not sovereign over the human body. This means that medical expertise must never become our source of ultimate confidence for physical well-being. Medicine makes a wonderful tool, but a poor deity. Whenever we get a prescription failed or go in for surgery or start chemotherapy, we need to remember that all healing truly does come from God and that Christ alone is the Lord of the body. And yet at the same time, saying that the God of Israel was humbling the gods of Egypt, he was humiliating Pharaoh's magicians. This had been going on for some time. And although the magicians had used their secret arts to imitate the plagues of the blood and the frogs, they were unable to replicate the plague of bugs. So to their credit, they gave up. They admitted that, that there was more power in God's little finger than in their spells and incantations. The fourth and the fifth plague say nothing at all about the magicians. We need to remember that. Uh, perhaps they were present, however, not to compete with God, but simply to witness his power. And yet this plague is very different. Not only were they powerless to prevent it and impotent to imitate it, but they themselves are afflicted by it. Now, to understand how completely God humiliated Pharaoh's magicians, it helps to know that by throwing ashes into the air, Moses was doing something that Egyptian priests often did. It was customary for Pharaoh's priests to take sacrificial ashes and cast them into the air as a sign of blessing. But God took that ritual act and even turned it into a curse. This was a matter of justice because the soot may have well come from a furnace for making bricks like the bricks of the Israelites baked for Pharaoh. If so, God was exacting strict justice, repaying the Egyptians for their sins. Now, you see, God was making Israel's curse a blessing. It was turning Egypt's blessing into a curse. Now, another thing that made this plague very humiliating was that the infectious disease prevented the magicians from carrying out their religious duties. The Egyptians valued purity, and so a priest covered with open sores would have been unable to perform his customary rituals. By thus denying their access to their deities, God made a mockery of Pharaoh's magicians. Their defeat was so complete, their humiliation so absolute, that the books of Exodus never mentions them again. In fact, one more thing about the magicians need to be mentioned. The Bible says that in contrast to Moses, who stood before Pharaoh in verse 10 of our chapter, they could not stand before Moses in verse 11 of our chapter. They couldn't stand it. They had to go somewhere else and scratch. Perhaps the very reason for this was medical. Remember, the plague spread from their feet up. But all of this talk of standing may have a deeper spiritual significance. Pharaoh's evil magicians were unable to stand in the presence of God's holy prophet. The Bible teaches the wicked will not stand in the judgment in Psalm 1-5. This was true for Pharaoh's magicians and it will be equally true for every sinner who refuses to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. You see, unless we are covered with his righteousness by faith in his name, we will never be able to stand before God. This is because the Bible prophecies a fresh outbreak of the very disease that plagued the Egyptians. Like many of the plagues in Exodus, the plague of boils will return at the final judgment. In his revelation of the end times, the apostle John saw the first angel went and poured out his bull on the land, and the ugly and the painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image in Revelation. 16 2. 
The Bible does not answer all of our questions about how and when this is going to happen. But what it does reveal is a warning. A day is coming when everyone who rejects Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, and King will be plagued with sores of God's wrath, which no one can stand. Now, still, the plague of boils ended the same way all the other plagues ended with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. You see, even after his gods were humbled and his magicians were humiliated, Pharaoh's heart would not yet wield. And here, for the first time, Scripture explicitly says that God was the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart. After each of the first five plagues, Scripture says Pharaoh's heart became hard. For example, in Exodus 7.22, or he hardened his heart in Exodus 8.15, or his heart was unyielding in Exodus 9.7. And yet this time it says that his heart was hard because God made it hard in verse 12 of our chapter today. Pharaoh's hard heart confronts us with the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But both of the following statements are true. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But how can these two statements be reconciled? What is the relationship between them? Well, some scholars argue that God did not harden Pharaoh's heart until after Pharaoh hardened it himself. When, when God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he was simply confirming the decision that Pharaoh had already made. And thus, the moral of the story is God hardens those who harden themselves. Well, that's true. As a matter of justice, God sometimes hardens the heart of those who have hardened themselves against him. In this case, that explanation is less than fully adequate because even before Pharaoh hardened his heart, God promised to harden it for himself. The Lord had told Moses, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go in Exodus 4.21. And while it's true that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, the deeper truth is that even this was part of the sovereign plan of God. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart was not God's response to Pharaoh, but his purpose to Pharaoh. God did this to demonstrate his justice. He did it to demonstrate his power, as we're going to discover as we look at the seventh plague in verse 16. And he did it also to display his mercy. As God said to Moses in Exodus 7, 3 and 7, 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt with mighty acts of judgment. I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And so God hardened Pharaoh's heart in order to multiply the plagues, which magnified the power of his justice and the mercy of God. So God struck Egypt with 10 mighty blows. So the demonstration of God's praiseworthy power always demands a response. And there really are only two ways to respond. One is to believe the Lord is God and obey what he commands. The other is to doubt the power of God, refusing to praise the Lord and then to wait to see what happens. Well, in order to show how Pharaoh would respond, God devised a test. Moses said to Pharaoh, give an order now to bring your livestock and everything that you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall of on every man and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die in Exodus 9:19. Now this was not the first time that God had given Pharaoh advance warning and yet it was the first time that he had given the Egyptians a chance to protect themselves. A killer hailstorm was on the way but there was still time to seek shelter. Pharaoh had, had every reason to follow the advice of God. He had already seen what God would do. He also had a huge cattle operation to consider for his servants specialized in the cultivation of quality livestock. 
livestock. But Pharaoh was not about to take any orders from Moses, and so he refused to bring his cattle in from the fields. Well, Pharaoh's refusal placed his staff in an awkward position. They had heard Moses' prophecy, which included hail in the forecast, and now they face a choice. One option was to take their chances with the gods of Egypt. There are plenty to choose from, because many of the Egyptian gods and goddesses were personified in the elements of nature. Pharaoh's officials could trust in Shu, the goddess of the the god of the atmosphere who held up the heavens. They could pray to Nut, the sky goddess who represented the vaulting sky. They could depend on Tufnut, the goddess of moisture, or on Seth who was present in the wind and the storm. Maybe, just maybe, there was something that one of their gods could do to save them. Well, some of Pharaoh's officials were starting to have their doubts. They didn't need the ten plagues to convince them of God's power. Six were more than enough. So as soon as they could leave the palace without being rude, they followed the safety instructions and ran for cover in verse 20 of our chapter today. They were listening. Even if Pharaoh wasn't, they decided to take the Lord at his word. And so the response of the officials who feared God shows that the plagues were starting to make believers out of the Egyptians. Their conversion process began with the third plague, which we see in Exodus 8.19 with the finger of God. It was complete by the time the Israelites left Egypt because the Bible says that many other people went up with them in Exodus 12.38. Who were these people? Some of them might have been slaves of other ethnic groups, but at least some of them must have been the Egyptians who had put their trust in the God of Israel. And so even when he was judging Pharaoh for his sins, God had a plan for Egypt's salvation. This plan can be traced through scripture. Jeremiah prophesied Egypt's return to favor in Jeremiah 46, 26. Ezekiel told of the nation's return from exile in Ezekiel 29, 13 through 16. Isaiah prophesied a day when God would say, blessed be Egypt, my people, and when the Egyptians would acknowledge him as Lord in Isaiah 19, 19 through 25, and even in Psalm 87. These promises were filled on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church and Egyptians heard the apostles declare the wonders of God in their own language in Acts 2, 5-11. The, the salvation of the Egyptians began with the Exodus when God saved some of Egypt with Israel. The practical lesson to learn from their example is that salvation always comes in response to the word of God. Some of Pharaoh's officials fear the word of God, as Exodus nine twenty says. And here the Bible uses the word feared in the proper sense. Doesn't mean that these men were afraid of what the Lord said. You, you better believe they were. They were scared enough to make sure they did whatever they had to do to save their property. But they also feared the word of God in the sense that they treated it with reverence and respect. They believed that what God said through his prophet Moses was true and they obeyed it. They were saved from the worst hailstorm ever. This is how salvation comes by responding to God's word with faith and obedience. God's word tells us that we are needy sinners who will be lost forever unless we believe in Jesus Christ and by his atoning death on the cross and through his resurrection from the grave. This is a word to fear, in other words, a word to trust and obey because it brings salvation. Now, since they neither fear God nor his word, most of Pharaoh's officials decided to take their chances in verse 21 of our chapter. Well, that was a big mistake as we see in verses 22 through 25 of our chapter. 
This was the worst hailstorm ever. With the hailstorm came rain, thunder, and lightning. Literally, there were great balls of fire, rolling bolts of thunder flashing everywhere. It was a supernatural storm. God himself was present in power and glory, judging the Egyptians for their sins. David said this in Psalm 18, 11 through 13, and as well in Psalm 29. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. The dark rains, clouds of sky, out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstorms and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. By, by the time the Lord was finished, the land was in total ruin. The crops left standing were the seedlings of wheat, as we learn in verses 31 through 32. This comment explains why there was something left for the horde of locusts to devour when they came in uh, on the eighth plague. It also helps to confirm the historicity of Exodus and to date the plague of hail. Paintings from ancient Egypt, they show farmers simultaneously harvesting both flax and barley as described in Exodus. This harvest generally took place in January with the wheat harvest nearly two months later. This means that the plague of hail came at the beginning of the year, only months before the exodus itself, which occurred in April. Now, this time frame also fits what we know about the ranching in ancient Egypt. Whatever livestock survived, the pestilence of the fourth plague would have been left outdoors from the month of January on. Although somehow the wheat managed to survive, the plague of hail destroyed everything. The crops were beaten into the ground. The trees were stripped Literally, they were smashed, blown apart by the sheer force of the tempest. There was loss of life. The earlier plagues had caused a real inconvenience, but as far as we know, they had not actually killed anyone. But the seventh plague brought death as well as discomfort, striking down everyone who was working in the fields. It was an amazing storm. The Egyptians had never seen anything like it before. This is significant because whenever pharaohs like Thumas III wanted to boast about their accomplishments, they would say they were doing more than all the things that were in the country since it was founded. Well, this was exactly the expression that God used to describe the seventh plague. In Exodus 9.18, it says, The worst hailstorm that has ever fallen in Egypt from the day it was founded till now. The nation of Egypt had been in existence for thousands of years, but this was the worst storm ever. This would have been especially impressive to the Egyptians because they believed that the storms came from the gods. This particular storm was sent to prove the power of God over the gods of Egypt. It proved the justice of God because in order to explain how bad the storm was, the Bible uses the same word that appears elsewhere to describe Pharaoh's heart, the word heavy or kabed. This shows that the Pharaoh got exactly what he deserved, a storm that was every bit as hard as his heart. The hailstorm of Exodus is a warning to pay very, very close attention to the word of God. There are basically two ways to respond to God. One is to fear his word, the other is to ignore his word. Fearing God's word means believing the good news about Jesus Christ, receiving him as a savior, Lord, and king. Ignoring God's word means doing nothing at all. But what will happen to those who do not take the word of the Lord seriously? Well, according to the book of Revelation, they will be crushed under the hail of the wrath of God in Revelation 16. 17 through 18 in Revelation 16 21. What Revelation describes really will be the worst storm ever with not only lightning and thunder but also deadly hail. The only way to be safe is to believe what God has said about his son Jesus Christ. God always saves those who trust in him. The seventh plague is a perfect example. Once again God discriminated between his people and Pharaoh's people in Exodus 9 26. And we can even imagine the weather report. Giant 
violent hail falls on Egypt, sunny skies over Goshen. By a supernatural and perhaps miraculous power, God protected his people from the mighty blows of his judgment. Some scholars have even sought to explain this in terms of Egypt geography, arguing that the hailstorm was confined to the Nile Valley. However, the real explanation is not so much geographical as it is theological. Israel was the object of God's affection, the choice of his electing love. The Israelites thus learn what is true for all of God's children. They were safe in the plan of God. Now, enough is enough. When Pharaoh saw that the hail was destroying his country, he called for Moses and Aaron. Not only did he ask them to pray for him, but he apparently also began to confess his sins in verses 27 through 28 of our chapter. Now, the Egyptians had more than enough, but what are we to make of Pharaoh's confession? Now, as we considered already, we, we perhaps even criticized him in the second plague for failing to say anything about his sins. But this time, maybe for the first time in his whole life, he says, I've sinned. In fact, this may have been the first time any Pharaoh ever admitted that he was wrong. In those days, individuals who approached Pharaoh were commanded to prostrate themselves, smelling the earth, crawling on the ground while invoking this perfect God and exalting his beauty. And yet on this occasion, despite his delusions of deity, Pharaoh confessed that he was a in fact, he recognized the righteousness of God, saying in verse 27, The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pharaoh used the language of justice, declaring both the righteousness of God and his own unrighteous sin. Pharaoh's confession, it sounds good, but it fails under close scrutiny. First, Pharaoh did not confess his sin to God. Now, notice that he was unable to pray for himself. He needed somebody else to intercede for him. Like many people, he calls for a minister when he was desperate, but he did not have his own personal relationship with the living God. Nevertheless, he believed in the power of prayer, and this actually served to increase his guilt. Well, Pharaoh was such a man, perhaps his unwillingness to pray, it explains why Moses was so skeptical about his confession in verses 29 through 30. And Moses, he sought right through Pharaoh. He knew that Pharaoh's confession was false because he knew that when a man is truly sorry for his sins, he, he takes them straight to God. There is no repentance without the fear of God. We must recognize that more than anything else, sin is an offense against the holiness of God. A confession that acknowledges sin without fearing God is a false confession that shall, falls short of true repentance. Well, second, we must say Pharaoh did not confess his sins. His first words to Moses were, this time I have sinned in verse 27. What Pharaoh said was true enough. Up, but what about the other six times that he hardened his heart? What about his keeping the Israelites in bondage, forcing them to make bricks without straw? What about the baby boys he tried to drown in the Nile? By failing to confess his other transgressions, Pharaoh was in fact minimizing his sin. He was willing to admit that he had made one or two mistakes, but he failed to recognize the depth of his depravity, the inherent rebellion of his whole entire nature. A confession that mentions one sin but forgets all the others is a false confession that falls short of true repentance. Well, Pharaoh did not turn away from his sins. He was very sorry that he was getting plagued with hail, but he was not truly sorry for his sins. The proof comes at the end of the passage, as we see in verses 33 through 35. And as soon as Moses' prayers were answered and the storm was stilled, Pharaoh went right back to his sins. He was afraid of the plagues, but he did not fear God. To put this another way, he hated the consequence of his sin without ever learning to hate the sin itself. And this is one of the differences between remorse and true repentance. Remorse is the sadness that comes from suffering God's judgment. Remorse is useful when it helps persuade sinners to repent. 
Now, many people are filled with remorse for what is happening to them without ever truly repenting of their sins. The best way to tell is to see what happens after they confess their sins. True repentance is a complete change of heart that produces a total change of life. By that standard, Pharaoh's confession was false. It was only temporary. Once the storm stopped and the plague was over, his heart was as hard as ever. It turned out that, that he did not want a change of heart after all. He just wanted God to leave him alone. But a confession that does not lead to new obedience is a false confession that falls short of true repentance. And so a closer examination of Pharaoh's confession, it shows that he was almost a believer whose repentance falls short of fearing God. His example reveals the deadly danger of partial repentance. If by God's spirit we are able to admit that we're sinners, then we need to make a full confession. We must tell God that we are truly sorry for all of our sins and then begin to walk in new obedience by his grace. This was true repentance, and may God grant us the gift to offer it. For as scripture says in Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen, he who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave. My name is Dave, and we've looked at Exodus chapter 9. Until tomorrow, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to also like, subscribe, or follow Servants of Grace on Facebook, Instagram, X, or YouTube. We appreciate your support.